virtues of the day so listeners might better understand themselves, as well as governments, institutions, our world. NPR will be trustworthy, enhance intellectual development, expand knowledge, and increase the pleasure of living in a pluralistic society. NPR will be a service to listeners that makes them more responsive, informed human beings, and responsible citizens of their communities and the world. And that's still our purpose. Work we do with you and for you. And we can only do it with your support. So please donate to the station today. Donate now at WJFFRadio.org. Thanks. It's WJFFRadio.org, WJFFRadio.org. Donate there or give us a call, 845-482-4141. That's 845-482-4141. We have folks here ready to take your call. Well, good evening and welcome to the local edition. News and information keeping you connected in the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Broadcasting live from our studios here in Liberty, New York. I'm your host, Jason Dolp. And it's a Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Coming up in the second half of the program, we check in with Kellyanne Costiol-Larrier, Executive Director for Fearless Hudson Valley. But it is Thursday, and what we do on a Thursday evening on the local editions, we start things off with our weekly news roundup from the Times Union... So to fill us in on what's going on in the Hudson Valley, we have Philip Pantuso, Hudson Valley Managing Editor for the Times Union, on the phone with us now. Hello, Philip. Welcome back. It's always good to be with you. So the news we're looking at here, let's start with uh, Ulster County Comptroller uh, Gallagher. What's go- What what's uh, this special proceeding all about? Yeah, so uh, you might recall, I'll cast your mind back to last week when I gave an update about the former... Uh, Finance Commissioner Bert Golnick. Oh, this is a Golnick update. So there's there's still more to come. (laughs) We were like, this is the end of it for now, right? And I was like, I think so. Well, it's extremely not the end of it because yesterday, I might have mentioned this last week or certainly one of the previous times I've talked about this, but the the grand larceny that he pleaded guilty to was – you know, for two nonprofit organizations for which he served as treasurer while he was also county finance commissioner. But th- that investigation was parallel to a state controller's office and a county controller's office investigation into a number of alleged misdeeds that Golnick perpetrated at the county offices. And um, also county controller March Gallagher has been looking into that since about April 2021. And yesterday, in state Supreme Court here in Ulster County, she filed a lawsuit um, naming the county and naming County Executive Jen Metzger, um, trying to get Metzger to comply with a subpoena that her office had issued last month, or a lawyer for her office had issued last month, um, to turn over documents related to that investigation. The backstory here is that... um, there were a number of uh, allegations about about Mr. Golnick, um, financial and workplace impropriety. Um, these have been playing out in various lawsuits. Um, there was a workplace harassment suit that, that are, I think, two actually that are that are um, ongoing. Um, and then there were also um, a couple of complaints that were made to the county controller's office that kicked off this investigation in 2021 about. Um, some personal 
credit card debt that Golnick had defaulted on, and a crime that's called time theft, which is uh, essentially when you uh, edit an employee's timesheet um, to you know inaccurately reflect the time that they worked. Um, there were other, you know, he, he was basically he. he the, the philosophy alleges that he had an inappropriate relationship with the subordinate as well. So back in April 2021, when the county controller's office got wind of these allegations, uh, she passed them on to then-county executive Pat Ryan. Pat Ryan's office retained uh, the outside, the county's outside counsel to conduct an investigation, um, kind of parallel to the county controller's investigation, into these tips, Right. Um, that investigation wrapped up in the beginning of 2022. And since then, uh, March Gallagher, the county controller, has been trying to get the results from that investigation. And she has been, so she tells me, and so she outlines in this lawsuit, she's been stonewalled kind of all along the way. Um, some of the things she's tried to get have uh, have come out in other proceedings. So I mentioned the um the harassment, the workplace harassment lawsuits, though the discovery process for those turned up um, some things that substantiated some of the allegations, uh, she was able to go back and review the county's timesheet or time like system and was able to see that Golnick had, in fact, mainly made several revisions to um, a subordinate's timesheet. But the actual report from the, uh, from the law firm uh, she's not been able to get. Um, the reason, so say uh, Pat Ryan and uh, Jen Metzger, is because turning that over and turning over another thing she's trying to get, which is uh, whistleblower complaints filed to the county hotline, compliance hotline, turning that over would risk uh, like blowing the identity of people who are, are whistleblowers and who are supposed to be protected by the county. Um, so there's there's a lot of kind of allegations flying back and forth here. Um, the county controller, uh, March Gallagher, she, as I mentioned earlier, have been trying to get this for, for a while and then sent a subpoena, subpoenaed um, these documents from the county executive. The county executive's lawyer responded within five days. This was on September 23rd with a legal brief saying that the records she was trying to get um, were like she was not able to um, to get them because you know they were concerned about blowing the identity of whistleblowers. What the subpoena is asking for is all of the the reports that were written up for all complaints filed with this or called into this compliance hotline from January 1, 2019 to the present day. So she's asking for more than just the specific complaints about Golnick's office. Um, so, you know, in an effort to try to get those documents, she, she filed this lawsuit. Um, the county executive, I, I, I spoke um, with a spokesperson for her office. Um, he, uh, or, or Metzger through him, called that this request an overreach and said um, that the county's labor attorney had advised the county controller over a month ago that the subpoena the subpoena for protected whistleblower information was improper under state law in the county charter. Gallagher insists that the county charter does allow her to have these records. Um, and so, you know, they're going to take it to the courts. Yeah. And then I guess my only question is, because this is 
there's layers to this very complicated story. So thank you for giving us all these details. Uh, but clearly there's uh, different perspectives on what's going on here. Will the courts be able to rule on this and get to the bottom of it? Um, you know, it's, it's unclear. I imagine because we're at a, a stalemate between the county controller's office and the county executive, who have often worked together since, since Metzger came into office, because we're at a stalemate that turns on a legal question, I, would, I guess I'd be surprised if there weren't a ruling here. Um, you know, I, I don't know what the timeline for that is going to be. That was, it, you know, this case was just filed yesterday. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I see no reason why the court wouldn't be able to issue some kind of, provide some kind of clarity. And do you have any indication, does this impact uh, the effective operation of the county? Is this, does this negatively impact the county's functioning or the functioning of, say, the comptroller's office or, or anything that people are trying to do? Um, well, Gallagher told me that this was kind of a last resort. Um, she felt like she said she felt like she had no choice. Um, this, in some ways, probably frees them up, <laughs> at least for the time being, because now they're just waiting to hear back from the courts on this investigation that they have been um, conducting for you know two and a half years at this point. Um, for the county executive's office, yeah, you know this this is being dragged, or she's she's getting dragged into a lawsuit where um, her office is going to have to provide a response, um, going to have to retain attorneys to draft legal briefs, and that's going to come out of county expenses. And, and so functionally taxpayers are going to pay for that. Um, you know, it, it's kind of too early to say how drawn out this process is going to be and thus how expensive it's going to be. So, you know, it's, it's kind of not clear yet how it's going to impact the county's bottom line and the finances of the day-to-day operation. Um, but we'll certainly be watching. All right. And thank you uh, for letting us know. And uh, any other time the name uh, Gulnick comes up, we'll we'll be looking for that update as well. Um, okay, and you've got some some uh, local take on the mess in Washington and choosing a Speaker of the House. Yeah. So yesterday, after Jim Jordan tried and failed for a second time to become the Speaker of the House, I uh, I spoke uh, briefly with one of the uh, twenty or so. Uh, Republicans who have voted against him in both rounds. Uh, that would be uh, Representative Mike Lawler, who represents uh, the Lower Hudson Valley, Rockland County. Um, Lawler, um, the reason I wanted to talk to him is because, uh, you know, there are a number, well, there are, there are about, of, of the 20 or so um, Republicans who are not voting for, um, for Jordan, who, who, of course, is, is a pretty far-right Republican who led the congressional effort to overturn the 2020 election, uh, who has never successfully sponsored a bill in Congress, um, and was called a legislative terrorist by his own former speaker, John Boehner. Of those 20 or so people who have voted against him, a lot of them are moderate Republicans in swing districts. And four of them uh, are... New York Republicans, uh, at least three of whom flipped their districts last year. I'll just say as a side note here, Mark Molinaro very much fits that classification as well, but he has voted for Jim Jordan. Um, so I 
you know, they're in a pretty interesting position of having to balance the need to uh, retain the moderate voters that propelled them to office last year in what's likely to be a competitive race again next year, while also, you know, appealing to the calls from national conservative media, especially to back Jordan. And, you know, I think the frustration that everybody on both sides of the aisle is feeling at this point of just electing somebody so we can get back to business. You know, it's been over two weeks now since Kevin McCarthy was deposed. Um, so I talked to I talked to Lawler about that just a little bit. He, he has continued to support Kevin McCarthy. Uh, he's voted for him in both rounds and says he never should have been removed. Um, and he, he kept hammering on this message to me of consensus, um, which I thought was interesting because he is voting in the extreme minority of his party right now. You know, he's, he's one of 20 or so Republicans uh, compared to, you know, 199 or 200 who have voted for Jordan. Um, I'll make no comment on who I think is right there, but, you know, he's, he's looking for consensus, but not exactly voting with where the vast majority of his party has decided they're comfortable with. I asked him pretty directly if there were any conditions under which he would vote for Jim Jordan if he gets nominated again. He kind of deflected that question. Ultimately, the objective for me is to elect a speaker. I try to get him to be a little bit more specific. And the only issue he raised is one that a lot of um, the New York congressional Republicans have mentioned, uh, raising the cap on SALT, which is a state and local tax deduction, um, which is capped right now at $10,000 per year. And in Long Island, where some of these representatives are, and in the lower Hudson Valley, that deduction cap is like pretty easily exceeded because they're high tax areas and, and mostly pretty high income areas. Um, so, you know, I don't really know. This is obviously like a fast moving situation. Um, the latest news as of this afternoon is that it sounds like there is an effort to uh, give more power to the speaker, the temporary speaker, uh, McHenry, Patrick McHenry, and at least let him run the office through the end of the year so they can you know, pass a spending bill and maybe get more aid to Ukraine and, and possibly Israel. Um, Lawler has said uh, in a statement today that he supports that, but Jordan has also said that you know, once that temporary speaker position expires, he plans to run for a third term. So, you know, we'll see. We're going to do a bigger story about this over the weekend, looking at um, looking at Molinaro and go, trying to go a little bit deeper on Lawler as well. Okay, great. And, um, you know, we, we're going to actually have to get going uh, uh, fairly quickly. Um, but uh, I, I do want to touch on these next two stories, uh, if we could, real quick. Um they're move, the Department of Public Services is moving spent fuel at Indian Point to dry storage. What's what's the implication of that? Yeah, so ever since the Indian Point nuclear power plant was taken offline in 2021, <clears throat> most of the spent fuel has been um, stored in these, like, cooling pools. Um, and there has been a lot of debate over what is going to happen with that with that fuel and also with the, the water, the, the radiated water in the plant. Um, Holtec, the company that is now in charge of decommissioning the power plant, has 
has said it wants to release some of that water into the Hudson River, which I'm not a nuclear physicist, but um, diluted radioactive water is, I guess, regularly released and in, in small quantities. I guess it's supposed to be safe is what the experts say. But what they did with these spent fuel cells is move them to dry cask storage on an accelerated timeline. So now there are now just about 4,000 of these spent fuel cells that are now contained within 127 reinforced concrete and steel casks on the site. Um, this is the problem with nuclear fuel. It doesn't really <laughs> go away anytime soon. So yeah. I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen with them next, but they're in a uh, more secure location now, at least according to the Department of Public Service. Okay, and then finally, uh, this is something that we were waiting for, was a report from the National Transportation Safety Board into the horrible bus crash in Wawayanda. Um, and they released this report. What does it say? Um, not much. This is just a preliminary report, and it was about four paragraphs long. Um, they still don't identify a cause of the crash. Um, you know, in the immediate aftermath, state police, um, and I think Kathy Hochul said that early indications were that there was a sort of front tire issue. The National Transportation Safety Board doesn't even go that far, and their investigation remains ongoing. But they did provide details that were previously unknown, including that the bus crossed all the way over the side, like, like all the way from the right lane to the left lane, um, went through a roadside cable barrier, and then tumbled down. Um, so people have seen the photos of it kind of resting in the median where the highway is divided there, but it had, it didn't just kind of go off the road at the nearest point. It crossed all the way over. Um, and the two people who died were riding in the front and they were ejected from the bus when that happened. Um, so, so pretty horrifying there, but the fact that no other, um, no other vehicles were struck as this bus was kind of careening across the road, I guess is potentially a small silver lining here. It seems like it certainly could have been worse. All right. Well, at least we know a little more details on what exactly happened, but we're still waiting for that cause. Philip, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us tonight. Of course. Take care. And again, we talk to uh, Philip Pantuso. Hudson Valley Managing Editor at Times Union every Thursday evening at this time. We're pausing right now during the local edition to uh, let you know what's going on, what's going on uh, with our fun drive. And uh, right now we want to say a big thank you to uh, listener Jacques. Uh, saying, as a part-time resident of the Lake Juan Pawpack area, I am glad I can enjoy my favorite NPR programs on WJFF. Thank you so much, uh, Jacques. Also, uh, we have a, an anonymous online donation, and we have an anonymous caller from Liberty making a generous donation over the phone and saying, keep broadcasting. So thank you. We want to keep broadcasting. To do that, we need the support of listeners like you. If you uh, were not Jacques, or anonymous or anonymous who just made a donation and you haven't made a donation yet, this fund drive, we want to hear from you now. Call us, 845-482-4141. Go to wjffradio.org and donate there. It's wjffradio.org or call us at 845-482-4141. More local editions coming right up.
There's always a story behind the music, how the song was written, why the song was written. I'm Kathy Geary. Join me for Now and Then. Now and Then, Saturday afternoons at 3 on Radio Catskill. Listen local. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Canoza Hall, featuring 22 guest rooms, a fine dining restaurant with full bar by Foster Supply Hospitality's award-winning culinary team, outdoor lakeview seating, and a full-service spa. CanozaHall.com From the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, RiverReporter.com And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org Welcome back to the local edition. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Well, New York saw an 8.7% increase in reported domestic violence victims since 2019. This is according to a new report released by New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli just today. Marking Domestic Violence Awareness Month, DiNapoli says one in four women and one in ten men experience sexual and physical violence or stalking in their lifetime. And the report also pointed out 41% of domestic homicide victims were people of color, a sadly consistent number over the course of the past decade. Joining us now to talk about Domestic Violence Awareness Month is Kellyanne Costiolarier, Executive Director for Fearless Hudson Valley. Kellyanne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me this evening. So um, before we get into the report, do you want to remind folks what a Fearless Hudson Valley is all about? Yes, thank you. That would be great. Uh, Fearless Hudson Valley, formerly known as Safe Homes of Orange County, um, now uh, provides comprehensive services throughout Orange and Sullivan County for victims of domestic violence, human trafficking, sexual violence, uh, and other forms of crime victimization. We provide everything, including shelter, to uh, comprehensive non-residential services, such as court accompaniment, uh, emergency services, support group, and have many advocates co-located within our criminal and civil justice systems to support victims as they navigate the various systems that they may need support from. Okay, and now and now on to this report and some of the info I said at the top there. Is this right that New York saw an 8.7% increase in reported domestic violence and if so, what what factors do you think are contributing to this increase uh, in, in domestic violence, especially, you know, uh, in New York City, New York State between 2019 and 2022? Yes. I mean, I, too, just saw the report today. Um, I can certainly speak to the to the fact that even here at Fearless within the last five years, our hotlines have increased approximately 32 percent over five years. And, you know, some of that is contributed to, I think, the ability to continue to raise awareness and work with many of our partners in our community to ensure that people know how to find services like Fearless. And so my hope from a service provider perspective, too, is some of that increase on our end is coming from the ability for people to find us more easily and know where support and services are. And then certainly recognizing that um, there could be an increase in those re- in this report connected to maybe law enforcement reports, but we, um, you know, are seeing 
it's it hasn't changed, meaning we've definitely seen an increase, and we absolutely have people finding us more more easily than they have in the past. And COVID has certainly had um, required us to get creative in ways to access us, including creating a web chat, including creating some on, online secure uh, platforms to engage victims and survivors, especially during those most difficult times when we were, um, you know, doing everything right uh, health-wise with the isolation and quarantining. And yet many victims were forced to quarantine and isolate with dangerous partners. Yeah. And I, I remember that being an issue at the height of the pandemic, I think even uh, talking to agencies like Fearless. Um from your perspective, one of the things that the comptroller calls for in this report is better coordination between local and state agencies and, and those agencies stepping up to do more. From your perspective, Sorry. how are those agencies okay. doing and, and what could be done for them to do better? Is this something that you think there's room for improvement there? Well, there's always room for improvement and certainly from a service provider perspective, interesting enough, domestic and sexual violence services, local community services are the, the most overly controlled um, agency. We answered to um, nine different state agencies. And, um, you know, that presents many challenges, including an administrative burden on local programs. And ideally, some of that bureaucracy and red tape could be removed to support victims and survivors so that they can more easily access the services, but also so that service providers can get the support and funding they need in order to effectively do our jobs. Wow. I mean, when you're dealing with people's lives, it seems like it's important to have, you know, proper uh, oversight and have things go through the challenge. But at the point where the bureaucracy starts getting in the way of the work that you can do to help people and help people be safe, that's that's concerning. Yes, it's certainly very concerning. And, you know, the important part of also recognizing that, um, you know, the agencies that provide these services need the support from the state government as well when there's opportunities to provide increase of cost in living to the staff that work in these agencies. We were one of the only service providers that was left off of the cost of living increase this year um, by the governor's budget. Um, and all of those things impact staffing and retention. This is very hard work and the staff that are in the trenches working along survivors and victims as they're navigating, you know, all of these systems need the support from the state in order to be able to do their jobs. Um, and we need to ensure that victims and survivors do not have to jump through so many hoops in order to receive support and services. One of the things that that, that we noted in this report is that, uh, it, again, 41% of domestic homicide victims are people of color. And then I think even within that, uh, it seems that there's, there's more uh, black and African-American folks and other categories highlighted in that category. Uh, I mean, what, what does that say to you and what do people need to know about the risks uh, for people of color when it comes to domestic violence? Well, I think what's, what's important is that um, we need to ensure that we are doing everything we can to work with the community. But more importantly, we know that domestic homicides are predictable and preventable and need to ensure that our criminal justice partners are assessing for risk and lethality and working with community victims and survivors as they're trying to engage systems for help and relief that they are, they are trained and skilled to provide risk and assessment and holding those that are using these abusive behaviors accountable so that we can attempt to disrupt these these homicides because all of the research shows 
that domestic homicides are predictable and preventable. And we know our most marginalized communities um, are not only um, at risk uh, and, and certainly have vulnerabilities, but also there are challenges within the infrastructures of systems that disproportionately impact um, people from black and brown communities. We've only got uh, about a minute here, so I want to make sure you let folks know uh, how best to reach you. Uh, but is there anything else that you want people to know besides that nuts and bolts info, too? The most important thing is that, you know, regardless um, if you're, are you, you or someone you know is a victim, uh, we operate a 24-hour hotline that's staffed by an advocate. That hotline is 845-562-5340. Again, that's 845 562 Five three four zero. We also have a web chat Monday through Friday, nine to five, on our webpage, which is fearlesshv, as in Hudson Valley dot org, and would encourage people to engage with us on our social media platforms, uh, Facebook, Instagram. We have lots of events and community awareness events that are happening throughout the month of October, but also throughout the year, and we're always. Um, Deeply grateful to the community because we rely so deeply on your support, donations, everything from in-kind to personal hygiene to fundraisers. And so if you're looking to be involved, uh, please call as well or engage us um, through our webpage. Kellyanne Costiolari, your executive director for Fearless Hudson Valley. I want to thank you so much for the work that you and your colleagues do. And, and thank you for talking to us about it tonight. Thank you so much for having us, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to share some information. Thank you. And again, that uh, that hotline uh, is 845-562-5340. That's 845-562-5340, and they're online at fearlesshv.org. That's going to do it for the local edition tonight. I'm Jason Dole. We've got the daily coming up next as we go into this program. I want you to remember we need your support. It's our fall fund drive. Call us at 845-482-4141. Or make your donation at WJFFRadio.org.